It's 1941. Europe is at war. And an Irish woman is in the north of France in a home for the mentally unstable. She reads in a newspaper that her father has died. The last time she saw him was nearly two years ago, just as World War II was breaking out. These are today's main events. Germany has invaded Poland and has bombed many towns. France has decreed general mobilization and martial law. The French Parliament is These are dangerous today. times in Europe. But she is in particular danger because Hitler has a stated policy to rid his new Reich of people with mental health problems. The German Supreme Command announced at half past 11 this morning that German troops had crossed all the frontiers, that the German Air Force had gone into action, and that the German Navy had taken charge of the Baltic. The woman in the home is Lucia Joyce, daughter of Nora Barnacle and James Joyce, one of the greatest literary geniuses of the 20th century. Lucia was in a place called La Baule in Brittany, Normandy, part of France. They were down in the south and east of France in the Vichy area and quite separated. And this had happened, of course, everything happened very quickly at that time when the Germans suddenly arrived and communication was very hard. And as he prepares to get himself, Nora and their adult son Giorgio out of the war zone, James Joyce is working frantically lobbying everyone he knows with any influence to try and transport Lucia out of her institution to safety. They had decided to get, try to get to Switzerland as the best place they could go and refuge. Georgia was of military service age and could have been conscripted and they were anxious to get him out of the whole war zone as fast as possible. So there was a real urgency about getting to Switzerland quickly. For a long time, Joyce tried to get get it fixed up so that Lucia could come with them. But a companion would be needed to get her from La Baule to where they were in Allier, in saint jerome le puy The asylum would have to organise, or someone would have to organise a companion to bring her there. Joyce had a deep connection with his only daughter, and he wrote to his son at the time that he couldn't bear for her to think that she'd been left alone in terror, believing she is abandoned by everybody. So I think what Joyce decided was to kind of they'd go ahead and go to Switzerland... And the idea was that Lucia would join them there. He even had looked up clinics in places near Geneva and so on that she could have stayed in. He had a list of possible places for her. But as soon as he died so suddenly and unexpectedly in early 1941, nothing was done about that at all. Lucia was born to James and Nora during her father's self-imposed exile from Ireland in Trieste, in Italy. She was born in a pauper's clinic. Indeed, Nora said that both Lucia and Georgia were almost born on the street. Sam Sloat is Associate Professor of English at Trinity College Dublin. It was part of Joyce's kind of self-centeredness that he felt he couldn't be in Dublin. So he absented himself with Dublin and managed to persuade Nora to join him, and they eventually settled in Trieste. Joyce was not a great provider for her, but then it's also, I mean, from Nora's perspective, there she was leading a poor but relatively settled life working as a chambermaid in Dublin, and this handsome young lad persuades her to join him on the continent, and she follows, but then winds up living, you know, a very poor life with no immediate prospects. 
when Lucio was born, Joyce was very much in the struggling artist mold, very poor, but he was also very self-involved and very much a heavy drinker, so not always at home and not always very supportive of his family. Lucia went to school in Trieste and enjoyed it. Her teachers reported that she was good at everything. Her brother Giorgio, while well-behaved, was marked unsatisfactory across the board. In Trieste, the life was always very unsettled and precarious because he was a very poor earner, Joyce. Terence Killeen is the resident scholar at the James Joyce Centre in Dublin. You know, he would get some money from his English teaching, but he spent a lot of it in bars and things, and they were almost always hard up. Giorgio and Lucia used to sing for their supper in a local cafe, where the owner would give the family free meals. You wouldn't say it was a very stable family background. It never was. Also, I suppose, to go more psychological about it, Nora and Joyce had a very intense relationship one-to-one, which the children might have felt possibly excluded from or marginal to and maybe neglected by even. That would have must have been disturbing as well. And the other great relationship in Joyce's life was also an all-consuming one. His masterpiece, Ulysses, loomed large in the family's life. As they moved from flat to cramped flat, Lucia remembered that her father used to spread the manuscript around the floor of the living area, marking passages with red pencil. She grew up speaking Triestan Italian and English, and when the family moved to Zurich when she was seven, she and Giorgio quickly learned the German dialect of Switzerland. When they moved to Paris in 1920, when she was 13, she added French to the mix. Herr Galmen schien mich zu mögen und immer fragte mich oft zu singen. Lucia, it means light, like Paris, the city of light. And Paris was to be where things really took off for the Joyce family. It was quite literally the centre of the world when it came to matters of art and literature and bohemian living. Okay, we're in a brasserie called Le Comptoir des Saint-Pères. It's on the corner of Rue des Saint-Pères and Rue Jacob in the Latin Quarter in Paris. Jean O'Sullivan is a founder member of the Paris Bloomsday Group. And this cafe was uh, a literary haunt in the 1920s. It was then called Michaud's. And Joyce and Nora, his wife, and their two children, Giorgio and Lucia, used to come here and eat every night when they first moved to Paris. And they were living down the road. The children came out with them every night from the time they lived in Paris. Um, earlier on in Trieste, there are, they were very poor and there were accounts of them you know, heading out of the town and leaving the children on their own with the kids saying oh you're leaving us here like pigs in a sty it's not fair but by the time they got to Paris the kids were in their teens and uh, they ate out as a group they did everything together really and there's a little description somewhere of Hemingway Hemingway who could barely afford a, a cheese sandwich you know <laughs> Hemingway walking by and looking in the window and seeing Joyce and his family sitting tucking into a nice meal with wine yakking away in Italian the whole Celtic crew of them I think he called you know you can imagine Hemingway with his nose pressed to the window you know <laughs> Joyce spent recklessly lived on a financial knife edge but he also enjoyed the patronage of a wealthy Englishwoman Harriet Shaw Weaver who admired his work hugely and sent cheques enabling him to support Nora and Giorgio and Lucia. 
When the Joyce family arrived in Paris, they stayed just down the road from Michaud's brasserie. Um, we're approaching the Hotel Lennox, which is on 9 Rue de l'Université, and this was Joyce's first address in Paris after he arrived with his family in July 1920. Um, Ezra Pound made the reservation for him. When they moved into this hotel, Lucia was 13 and Giorgio was 15. In all, they stayed there three times. First time, they all shared a room together. And the second time, they kept two rooms. One for Giorgio and the other one for Joyce, Anora and Lucia. Lucia shared her parents' bedroom until she was well into her teens, which is, I think is a little creepy. Um, to, until their mid to late teens, they were really living in cheap rooms and cheap hotels and living on very little. Um, and when he was working, was he working at home? He would, Joyce could write anywhere. He used to, apparently used to write in this hotel here. He used to just, you know, write on the suitcase. He used to use the suitcase as a desk. And he could write in noisy conditions. And he could write, he was very single-minded. He could write anywhere. There is a description of the Joyce's in this hotel by a young doctor who uh, came along and found sort of half-empty suitcases, clothes hanging everywhere, toilet accessories spread around. And he said, wrapped in a blanket and squatting on the floor was a man with dark glasses who proved to be Joyce. And facing him in the same posture was Nora. Between them stood a stew pan with a chicken carcass and beside it a half-empty bottle of wine. So we have, <laughs> you know, tells, describes very vividly the way they were living. We can go in, you know. We could go in and talk in the lobby. In the midst of all this bohemian creative endeavour, Lucia was becoming a talented and sensitive teenager. She was too old to play in a hotel room while Joyce worked, and too young to be independent. So she went to school. Yeah, apparently Lucia went to school from here. We don't know which school it was. I don't know if her schooling lasted much longer. She was 13 when she came here. Giorgio was 15, and he had apparently already finished his schooling by 15. But Lucia still had another couple of years to go. And that gives us a little insight into how the schooling was valued in the family. It doesn't seem to have been a high priority. No, I've always found that really extraordinary that Joyce, who received the best education money could buy, you know, he was in Clongos, he was in UCD, he himself put a high value on learning, and yet his children had the most rudimentary schooling, you know, in three different countries, um, changes of languages which would have set them back. Lucia apparently had very good school reports when she was younger but we don't hear much about her schooling and when she came to France and a friend described her as being illiterate in three languages which is a very cruel sort of a judgment on somebody. Joyce is on record as saying that all a woman needs is to be able to write a letter and carry an umbrella gracefully. Now if that was his attitude to women's education it's no surprise that Lucia got very little. Perhaps he was being facetious but you know, the evidence is there that she didn't get a, a good education. Throughout this period, Joyce and Lucia were very close. There was an intense and somewhat confusing family dynamic. In, in one sense, he was negligent, and in another sense, he was hugely present in their lives all the time. They didn't have a chance to build their own lives independently. They were always in their father's shadow. Because, you know, people around Joyce, they were just sucked into this vortex, of, you know, his strong personality. I mean, he dominated the company wherever he was. Lucia was on the verge of young adulthood 
and in Paris, one of the most exciting cities in the world. And like her father, she had an artistic sensibility that needed expression. And Joyce himself believed that there was something special about his daughter. Joyce said that whatever spark of genius he had seems to have been transmitted to Lucia and turned into a fire in her brain. This was the way he put it. This is the famous Shakespeare and Company bookshop. In Joyce's day, it was run by the American Sylvia Beach on the left bank. It was the centre of literary life in Paris at the time. And Joyce was one of the leading lights of this scene. Lucia, bright and engaging daughter of this famous literary man, came here often. She was a very cosmopolitan child with a very unconventional upbringing and she was used to the cafe culture and adult society and of course had this wild father who drank and sang songs and wrote strange books and a lot of her friends were writers and dancers and sculptors. Today the head buyer in Shakespeare and Company is an Irish woman, Linda Fallon from New Ross. Um, She was a really great singer, the whole family seemed to be good at singing, Um, Georgia was also a beautiful singer and she played the piano, she played the harp, Uh, she apparently wrote a novel um, she was also a talented illustrator and studied design. Uh, she took classes with Alexander Calder. But of all the artistic modes she explored, there was one that captured Lucia's imagination like no other. Dance. Her first dance instructor was Raymond Duncan, Isidore Duncan's brother. Uh, she was just 15 when she started studying with him and he was quite eccentric and his, his followers all lived in a commune and they were vegetarian and they wore tunics and sandals. So she wasn't just learning to dance when she started training with him. She was also experiencing a kind of counterculture and she was essentially hanging out with the Parisian hippies of the 20s. Modern dance in 1920s Paris was a dramatically new and exciting art form. It blew apart the structured world of ballet brought a new kind of physical expression to the discipline. It was really cutting edge. For Lucia, it was the creative outlet she had been searching for, and it opened up a whole new world to her. She and the writer Kay Boyle studied dance together. She dated the sculptor Alexander Calder for a while and would have met a lot of the artists in his circle, then like Man Ray and Joanne Miro. Um, Apparently they used to go to what they called bottle parties. The idea was that the window on the ground floor of the apartment was left open and you brought your your favourite type of alcohol and you passed the bottle through the window and only then would you be admitted. The bottle was like the password for getting into these. That sounds so fabulous. I want to throw them too. (laughs) And all those amazing people there. I know, it was incredible. I mean, she must have had a lot of inspiration for the work that she was doing then. I mean, she seemed to kind of explore a lot of different modes of creativity. So Lucia was discovering herself in a city thrumming with creative energy, fueled by unconventional characters who were pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable in their artistic lives and in their social lives. She was certainly very unconventional. Um, when she went on holidays to visit her cousins in Bray, she'd go skinny dipping at five in the morning and she liked to drink champagne during the day. And she seems to have been a lot of fun, actually. Um, she was certainly very spirited and intense and a uh, bit of a rule breaker. Lucia's father was experimenting at the very limit of what language could do, and her friends and acquaintances were experimenting in visual arts and film. For her, modern dance was just as exciting. I think it was what she wanted more than anything. When she danced, she felt free. It 
was also a way for her to express herself directly with her body without needing any of the four languages that she was using by then. There would have been no language barrier in dance. When she was happiest, I think, was when she was getting to dance a lot. And she had a real hunger for it, like a real curiosity. She experimented with a lot of different forms. She was really passionate about the dancing, but do we know how accomplished she was? I think she was talented. Um, There was an interview with her in the Paris Times in 1928, and the journalist wrote, When she reaches her full capacity for rhythmic dancing, James Joyce may yet be known as his daughter's father. As Lucia's skills as a dancer grew, she began to perform publicly in Paris. She was part of a dance group called Les Six, she trained with the famous dancer Jean Borlan, and she danced in a film by the groundbreaking modernist filmmaker Jean Renoir. And then in 1929, when Lucia was 21, Paris hosted the first ever international festival of modern dance. The Balboulier on the left bank was the venue, and Lucia entered this highly competitive competition. She got through to the final round, where each contestant had to present an original improvisation which had been developed in secret. there's actually a photo of her in her costume while she was performing a costume that she had made herself apparently she was very good at knitting and embroidery and quite good with her hands and this costume was absolutely stunning it was blue and silver and green and the idea was that she was a kind of mermaid and she was covered in these sequins and a cap with a long wig and one leg is completely covered in sequins and the other leg is bare and it's just stunning and beautiful Do we know how she got on, how her performance went? She got through to the final round, to the last six, and she didn't win, but apparently she was the audience favourite. They were all chanting that the Irish girl should have won. It was around this time that Lucia met Samuel Beckett. He was 23, she was 21, and he'd come to Paris to seek out James Joyce. Joyce's experimental writings had sparked a degree of hero worship in the young Irish intellectual Beckett was a big fan, big admirer. So he befriended the Joyces and then essentially sort of became Joyce's secretary. He would come and read to him because Joyce had failing eyesight. He translated passages of Finnegan's Wake into French and, yeah, essentially worked like his secretary. He hung out with the family a lot and he became very good friends with Lucia. They would go to the cinema together and restaurants and he came to see her perform in her shows. Apparently she fell quite madly in love with him. Beckett was destined to become one of the most famous modernist writers in the world, in some ways surpassing Joyce. But at this stage, he was in awe of the older man. Shortly after he began his friendship with Joyce, he sort of began various affectations, even wearing uh, the same style of shoes and the same size of Joyce, even though Beckett's feet were larger. Um, He and Lucia did start dating, as it were, but he broke it off at one point by confessing that he was more interested in her father, therefore using her as a kind of entree. And once that confession was made, that obviously actually did him no favours. And sort of Nora basically said they didn't want to have anything him to have anything to do with the family upon seeing how distraught Lucia was um, I think there's reason to suspect that that's not completely true he might have felt more strongly about her than that statement might have implied one of the characters in his early novel Dream Affair to Middling Women is based on Lucia as late as the mid 30s he does admit to having some still some feelings towards her so I think it was a much more complex relationship This was an intense period of emotional growth and creative endeavour for Lucia. And meanwhile, 
James Joyce was deeply embroiled in the writing of his intricate and obscure masterpiece Finnegan's Wake. Like all of his work, Finnegan's Wake was unfolding in the middle of the Joyce's family life. Lucia's cousin visited and remembered that as Joyce worked on Finnegan's Wake, Lucia would dance silently in the same room. There was a special creative connection between father and daughter during this time. Some people have described her as his muse. Others have said she actively helped him to write Finnegan's Wake. So and so, toe by toe, and fro they go round, for they are the ingles, scattering nods as girls who may. She in fact is a kind of substratum in the wake, and she's written into its dynamics, its fluidity, and the dancing movement. Professor Anne Fogarty from UCD. The dance of language in the wake is partly Lucia, but also the daughter figures. Some of the daughter-like figures in the wake are modelled on Lucia, and she helps her father with the composition of the wake. For they are an angel's garland, and they leap so loopily, loopily as they link to light. And they look so lovely, lovelit, noosed in a nuptious night. Lucia is, is embedded, she's buried in, in Finnegan's Wake. And they leap so loopily, loopily as they link to life. And she's not just there in the female character, she's somehow part of that kind of new art form that Joyce is discovering as Lucia is finding um, the avant-garde Paris and mixing with Man Ray and Duchamp and the surrealist artists and the avant-garde dancers of her day. And Joyce is producing another kind of avant-garde art in Finnegan's Wake. And they look so lovely, lovelit, noosed in a nuptious night. For they are the florals, from Ponzi and Pansy to Papa Vare's blush. He, he saw her as an aspect of himself. I think there's something very strange about the, the history of the, of the, the Joyce's on, on, on that level. Uh, it was not just that she was supposed to help him in his career, as all of the women in his life did, but Joyce himself firmly believed that somehow he had bequeathed his genius to Lucia. He could see it in her. The intensity of the connection between Lucia and her father brought its own problems for her. People were phoning Joyce to congratulate him on the publication of Ulysses and she was cutting the wires and saying, I'm the artist here. Who knows what was going through her mind? I mean, she must have, she'd put up with this all her life, I guess, people hero-worshipping Joyce and maybe she just decided that she'd had enough and that... She was an artist too and deserved a little bit of the attention. She seems to have provided a lot of inspiration for Joyce, but I think she didn't just want to be someone's muse. She wanted to be a creator in her own right too and wasn't really helped in that process. Giorgio was allowed to do his own thing more, um, but Lucia was expected to stay with the family and every time they moved, she had to disrupt her training and move with them because they would follow uh, whatever Joyce felt he needed to do to research Finnegan's Wake or work in progress, as they were calling it at the time. So when he wanted to go to London, they had to just uproot themselves and move to London. And she had to stop whatever she was working on at that time. And I think all those disruptions probably really disheartened her. In 1931, James moved himself, Nora and Lucia to London for six months. For Lucia, it meant leaving behind the opportunity of setting up a small dance school with her friend Kitten Neal. But one of Joyce's reasons for his journey was to be even more traumatic for her. He was going to London because he wanted to marry Nora under British law. The marriage must have been quite a shock. Uh, apparently she didn't know and Georgia did not know. They assumed that the parents had been married in Trieste. 
Joyce maintained a kind of fiction, which goes against some of his principles, really, that there had been a marriage in Trieste. It had to be revealed to them that the parents needed to get married. So, you know, I think it was definitely a shock. And I understand that Lucia was actually very angry about having been kept in the dark, especially over all this. She mightn't have minded if she had known, but she hadn't known that she was herself illegitimate, of course, as was her brother. Lucia was angry with her parents about their marriage. And she'd also been really upset by her brother's marriage to a rich older divorcee the previous year. Joyce explained that she'd loved her brother in what he called an extraordinary way, and that Giorgio's marriage had caused her much hardship. But why was this so upsetting for her? There are dark emotions there as well. Um, There is much discussion of the incest theme as it emerges, and particularly in in Finnegan's Wake. Um, It's again a kind of symbolic motif for Joyce about um, closeness of of relations and the suggestions of brother-sister incest and father-daughter incest. But he's using the theme in order to talk about a kind of over-intimacy and the way in which um, family relations can be um, pernicious and literally uh, poisonous. The Joyces tired of London and came back to Paris. 1931 wore on. At this point, Lucia's life begins to go slightly out of focus. She has a number of affairs, none of which work out. And for some reason, she dances less and less. She seems to have lost confidence um, as a dancer, and I think there all her troubles really began. Her father encourages her to focus on her artistic talent by devising a joint project where she produces illustrations for a collection of his poems. For Lucia, dance was central to her ideas about life and creativity, but her family didn't see it quite the same way. Joyce is proud of her achievements up to a point, but then when it becomes an emotional battle for her, he cuts her off from the world and it makes it very difficult for her to to flourish at all as an individual. When you say he cuts her off from the world, what 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 did he do? Um, he thinks that it's no longer advisable for her to be part of the that social milieu, the 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 dancers' world. And I think she also suffered from the problem of simply being a woman. And in in that period, there wasn't too much else that she could be. She was tied then to her family if she didn't get married, and her various love affairs didn't didn't really flourish. Um, so things seemed to have. Um, disimprove for her. One of Lucia's lovers from this time, Albert Hubble, described her like this. Her solemn, almost melancholy expression could suddenly break up in a monkeyish grin. She affected a certain insouciance, but she seemed quite vulnerable. She had a way of standing quite close to you, and for a moment confiding her whole self to your care. In February 1932, Lucia threw a chair at her mother, apparently because her family had invited her old boyfriend Samuel Beckett to her father's 50th birthday party. Her brother Giorgio intervened. He took her immediately to a Maison de Santé, a mental home. Somehow, over a period of a couple of years, Lucia had gone from being a professional dancer cresting the wave of Bohemian Paris to being locked up against her will. What I find hard to identify is what it was she was doing that made people so concerned that they wanted her to kind of be supervised or yeah. institutionalised. It's a little bit cloudy. 
It seems to have been many things. Um, obviously, one has to be wary of the sources and bias in people's comments. A number of family friends actually argue the opposite, that they felt by and large Lucia um, was fine and that there was not too much wrong with her. But um, it seems to have been many things, uh, certainly emotional instability. Um, she also goes wandering. She frequently just leaves the, the, the family home. She leaves the mental home after a short stay and returns to live with her parents. Over this period, she sees a number of professionals and everybody has a differing opinion about what, if anything, is wrong with her. That anyone could call her insane seems to me absurd. Not a raving lunatic, merely a victim of her disease. Gifted child of a gifted father. Just a poor child who tried to do too much. The diagnoses ranged from the ominous-sounding hebraphenic psychosis to there's not much the matter with the girl and whatever it is, she'll soon get over it. Mrs Joyce reprimands Miss Joyce for any gesture or word she uses or makes and this renders the strain almost unbearable. Sometimes she would be extremely passive, almost to the point of t- total sort of paralysis. Other times then she'd erupt into awful furies, you know, episodes of anger when she would sort of fling furniture around and destroy stuff. Her behaviour was erratic, um, uncertain, and then all of a sudden she would sort of take off one day and leave and not, not appear again for, you know, many, many hours, sometimes even overnight, and cause great anxiety among those who were trying to mind her. She hated being supervised. On the other hand, to leave her alone was also dangerous. She went to deep sulks and this sense of going to explode any minute that was there. When you say she would head off um, and disappear for, for hours at a time or maybe even overnight, what's the idea about what she was doing during this period of time? It's, it's not really known for sure. I, I suspect nothing much, really. Wandering around, that's all. I, mean, I suppose the overnight disappearances, disappearances were not that frequent, but she would sometimes stay. She, she might book into a place, a, a boarding house, for a night or something, or indeed just wander the streets even. It was all very risky, definitely, and very edgy behaviour. But it would cause huge anxiety and you know, people are responsible to Joyce for her. When you say it, it, it was risky and edgy behaviour, what strikes me is that now if a 28, 29-year-old woman wanted to head off for the night and not do anything terribly rash but just have a bit of space on their own, nobody would think it was risky or edgy. So is it that the, the, the culture of the time was against what she was doing or was there something else about her that made it risky? Yes, there was something else about her. Her track record, unfortunately, this is kind of at a stage when she had already shown serious symptoms of disturbance. So while it's quite true, and even then, someone of that age could indeed go, go off and would be both entitled to and indeed almost expected to. In her case, there was, a, there was a distinct risk of, you know, falling into the wrong hands, maybe. It's meeting someone who was not just, you know, sort of was actually hostile. She might not realise the danger of some of that. And apart from that, her own behaviour, I don't think she ever showed suicidal tendencies as such, but she could certainly do dangerous things like set fire to stuff and things like that and perhaps get into a fight. For a woman, that would be difficult to do. But you know what I mean? Cause trouble. Is, it, is, it, is, it, is there a question of promiscuity around some of this behaviour that might have made it additionally concerning? Correct. There is indeed. That is a little bit obscure because of the, the mores of the time. People were not prepared to talk much about that. But yeah, that would certainly be a factor. She might meet some man or other and anything could happen after that. And yes, promiscuity part of it, perhaps pregnancy, you know, and then what would happen about that, you know. 
So that, that didn't actually occur, but one could imagine it might. But this is the kind of almost hidden fear around some of her escapes as yes. such, or escapades. Yes, and just unspoken fear of promiscuity, possible pregnancy. I'm just bringing this up. I never actually saw this mentioned anywhere, but it must have been a possible fear of the time, you know. Yes, and the other question around that is that um, some of the things I've read have said that um, quite a bit of her correspondence was subsequently destroyed so that it's hard to fill in a full picture. Is, is that the case? It, it does appear that her nephew, Stephen, did destroy quite a bit of, of correspondence relating to her. Because of that, we don't know what was actually in it. His view was that it had nothing at all to do with James Joyce. It was a totally internal family matter and that, therefore, he was entitled to keep it from the the eyes of the curious. But since we don't know what was in it, we're not sure what exactly is missing or how serious it was. It's likely to be about Lucia's illness. In May of 1932, Lucia was brought to another institution, Leila Ross, and held against her will. A few months later, Joyce himself smuggled her out of Leila Ross and sent her to live with a nurse companion in Austria. Joyce later said she had a lesbian affair with this nurse, and Lucia wrote this letter to her at the time. You speak as if one's fate were a mere nothing, as if the mountains are inaccessible, and you insist that one can be content to gather a single strawberry in the lovely forest. I prefer abundance. The clouds are not inaccessible, and I have seen the mountain peaks and the ocean, its surface like a ripe fruit with my own eyes. She's not more uh, sexually promiscuous than any other um, female um, figure within the period, Zelda Fitzgerald, or any other kind of uh, woman artist that one can think about. There are um, several friends of Joyce who saw her as, as a flapper, as this modern woman. But nonetheless, um, despite the kind of modern veneer, the expectation was that a woman would marry. Um, she herself lived with that kind of fantasy of romance and uh, marriage true to her later years. Oddly enough, in some ways, they were a very bourgeois household. Um, you know, and her brother especially was really a very bourgeois kind of person. George and lots of ways. That sort of links into a question I have about Giorgio's response to Lucia's instability. He seems to have been pretty unforgiving at a point and he just wanted the problem solved and her sort of taken away. Is that a fair description yes. of it? I'm afraid it is a fair description of it. Well, he was surprisingly for an older brother whom you'd expect to be protective of a sister. He gave up on her very early on and washed his hands of the whole thing, in a surprising way, actually. Maybe he felt himself threatened by this degree of instability and just felt he couldn't handle it. But he did nothing to help her that I can see. And he, I think, of all of them, seemed to be the most inclined to want her put away from a very early point. He'd sort of given up on her. I don't know how far back that went, maybe even further back than one realises but yes there's a surprising degree of indifference to her fate so it was never no there's nothing nothing kind of uh, tender about it I'm afraid nothing protective no. Giorgio wanted a clear-cut solution to his sister's problems he repeatedly lobbied to place her in an institution and some years later when his own wife experienced emotional disturbance he advocated the same solution. 
Nora, after what appears to have been years of strained mother-daughter relations, also backed away. But James Joyce became Lucia's main advocate. He became consumed by the quest to try and save his daughter. Joyce, he goes in quest always of the, the best treatment. The fear for Joyce always was that if Lucia were labelled mad, that she would end up in, an, in, in institutions where the regimes were extremely harsh and straitjackets were used. She seems to have been subject to all kinds of quack regimes and the uh, injection of various bovine serums at one point uh, in the UK. Joyce was ready to pursue any kind of hope that presented itself, so he lent credence sometimes to these forms of treatment. But you can imagine the kind of anxiety that this would have caused Lucia herself to be just subject to any kind of random treatment that seemed the new best thing to do. But what effect might these treatments themselves have had on her sanity? Pat Bracken is a consultant psychiatrist with the HSC. It's impossible for me to speculate about what the effect of the things that that Lucia had, but if she had, say, barbiturates, which would have been sedative drugs, um, she might have well been sedated with them and not able to, to think through things. Uh, but she, wa- she was prescribed barbiturates, yeah. and her father did send packets of barbiturates to right. her when she was away from her okay. usual chemist. So she, yeah. she definitely used them. Used them, yeah. And whether, you know, if she had periods where she couldn't get them, when she had been taking them for a while, if she did have periods where she couldn't get them, she may well have developed withdrawal effects from them, which would have manifested as disordered behaviour of one sort or another, which may in turn have been interpreted by her family and others as her becoming unwell again. Along with the more medicalised treatments, Joyce also arranged for Lucia to be seen by Carl Young. Lucia didn't like him much. She described him as a fat materialistic Swiss man trying to get hold of her soul. Jung uh, made the comment that Joyce and Lucia were like two people going into a river, one diving and one falling. Whatever was wrong with Lucia, there were periods when she seems to have been quite well. And the following year, in 1935, she was considered well enough to go to Ireland to stay with her cousins in a house in Bray, a seaside town a short tram ride down the coast from Dublin. She uh, brought a a lot of high-fashion clothes with her from Paris. She drank, stayed up all night. Um, She painted her bedroom black at one point, black and gold, I think, uh, which they quite liked. Um, That wasn't seen as as, as too shocking, but uh, of course it was another another badge of her bohemianism. All kinds of episodes happened during those uh, few weeks. Um, She goes missing for uh, a number of nights and nobody knows uh, where she was. She seems to have just wandered around. She, she must have wandered the, the streets for almost a week and was eventually found by a, a friend of Joyce's. In some ways, she's recreating Ulysses in, in a very different manner. This is the, the daughter's version of, of Ulysses, lived through in a kind of distraught, self-destructive way uh, some years later. It's seen as one of the, the times in which she, she fell apart once again in, in her life, that she might have made a go of it, but that simultaneously she was coming apart at the seams. Lucia's options were narrowing. After Ireland, she stayed with family friends under strict supervision for a time. But then within a year, she found herself admitted to the clinic of Dr Delma in La Baule in the north of France. 
which is where she still was three years later when World War II broke out. This is how her father found himself in Switzerland, desperately trying to reunite his family. And how Lucia, vibrant, talented, intense Lucia, was left waiting and waiting. In the midst of the upheaval caused by the war, Lucia had a visit from an old lover. Samuel Beckett went up to La Bole to see how she was. He had chosen to stay in Paris working for the French resistance. Beckett saw her and wrote to Joyce, but didn't know that Joyce had already moved to Zurich, so sent it to Joyce in Jérôme Le Puy, where Joyce had been for a few months, saying that he'd seen Lucia and that Lucia is perfectly all right. But the letter obviously never reached Joyce. James Joyce died suddenly in early 1941, just a few months after he had arrived in Zurich. He died not knowing if Lucia was safe. Nora never again has contact uh, with Lucia. She never uh, visits her. Giorgio visits and other of Joyce's friends visit and are quite snide. I mean, they, they leave quite hurtful comments behind uh, about Lucia, that Joyce was mad and his daughter was mad. Lucia stayed in France throughout the war, until in 1951 she was transferred to St Andrew's Hospital in Northampton. Some very, very creative people ended up in the institutions that were there. Uh, some very fine artists and musicians and poets. And Lucia was quite a creative person, was a bright spark in many ways. I'm sure a lot of women who simply wanted to express themselves or who wanted to um, uh, have a life that was a bit different to what was being determined for them could well have fitted the category of out of order, of being mentally unwell. Nora died in 1951 and Giorgio in 1976. Lucia outlived them all. My sense of her is that she was a nice Joyce as a person who was well disposed and friendly by nature and, and sociable and nice, you know. Whereas neither James nor Giorgio could be called exactly nice in that way. Lucia never lived outside an institution again. She died in Northampton in 1983 at the age of 75. She had spent half a century in mental institutions. <laughs> 